continue to lift him up. And if you'd open your Bible uh, to the book of Revelation, uh, it's the last book in your Bible. So if you get to maps, you've gone too far, right? Uh, but uh, back up a few pages from the maps and find, and my mic seems a little hot to me. Uh, does that seem loud to anybody else? All right. All right. Um, if you would uh, back me down just a little. All right. Well, we're going to continue our study through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation and letters that Jesus wrote um, to the seven churches recorded for us by the Apostle John. Uh, as you make your way there, let me challenge you to do this. To ask yourself and, and try to answer for yourself this question. What are you willing... What are you willing to sacrifice to remain faithful in following Jesus? What are you willing to sacrifice to remain faithful in following Jesus? Let me give you some examples. Would you willingly go to prison for the sake of Christ? Would you embrace faith in Christ if doing so might mean you lost custody of your kids? Would you embrace faith in Christ if it meant that you could not travel within your own country or hold a legitimate job? That any payment that you got for what work that you did would be cash on the barrel head under the table. You'd have to work You'd have to work kind of in the, in the gray market or in the black market economy to be able to provide for yourself and your family. The reason I ask is that these are some of the questions that our brothers and sisters around the world are having to answer right now. They have to answer these kinds of questions in places like China in places like Iran, in places like Saudi Arabia. In countries all over the world, our brothers and sisters face very real questions like these. What are you willing to sacrifice to remain faithful in following Jesus? And as I'm asking these questions, I hope you feel that lump in the back of your throat right now. And you're wondering, hmm, I don't know. If it meant I would lose my kids to the foster system? I don't know. What would you do in the face of these kinds of choices? It will probably not come to that in this country, at least not for a long while. But softer forms of this very well might. There have already been in recent years Christians whose livelihoods have been threatened over the fact that they will not endorse that which God condemns. And it is to our very great benefit that the church faced persecution in the first century because God caused them, I think, to face persecution from the jump so that it could be written about 
and that we could learn from their example, both good and bad. Because of their suffering, we have the opportunity to learn from God's Word about being faithful in following Jesus when things get, get very tough indeed, and how to live a, a life of fearless faith in fearful times. So I want to invite you to pray with me again over the opening of God's Word, and, uh, and that we would understand and apply these things we're about to learn. So let's pray. Father, again, we lift up Lonnie to you. We uh, don't know exactly what's going on with him, but we, we pray for his protection, uh, for his healing, and for his soon return to us. Uh, Father, we pray as we open your word that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us. Speak to us, not simply through our ears, but in our hearts, that we might feel the impact of all of the truth that you are trying to communicate to us. Father, help us not to grow deaf of hearing. Help us to have wide open ears to hear and, and hands and feet that are eager to put into practice what the Word says to us by your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' powerful name and by your Holy Spirit's power in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is what the Word of God says. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. As we look at verse 9, one of the things I am immediately struck by is how the apostle refers to himself. Remember, this is John. John is the beloved disciple. The one who ate with Jesus. Who was closest to Him. He was one of the three members of Jesus' inner circle of His closest friends. He was one of the men who saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. One of the first of Jesus' disciples. He's the writer of four other New Testament books in addition to this one. But here he describes himself as John, your brother and partner. There's a lot to learn from that example of humility in that, isn't there? Here's a guy who could, who could big-time everybody. You ever been in one of those gatherings? Like maybe when you go for your class reunion, and you stand around and, you know, the primary purpose, basically, I think, of a class reunion is to find out who got rich and who got fat, right? And uh, we want to know what everybody's doing who still has hair? Who still has the original wife or husband, right? Whose pants got bigger? These are all the important questions we need to know, right? Um, and so, and, but you, as you're standing there, sometimes as you're talking, especially if you're talking to someone who regards themselves as tremendously important. So, so what did you do? Well, I went to I went to Taylor, and then I uh, went to Dallas Seminary, and then I, 
became a pastor. Well, in a certain circle, I mean, that's like big stuff, right? Like, woo, right? But in another circle you might be in, they might go, you went to where? And you became a what? Right? But John legitimately has a lot of bragging rights, right? I was the beloved disciple, the writer of five New Testament books. I was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. I was one of the first witnesses to the empty tomb, and I have outlived everyone else because I was the best. And he says of himself, your brother and partner. Your brother and partner. He doesn't big time people. He doesn't see himself as greater and more important, but as someone who comes alongside them. And look at what he is their partner in and their brother in. Do you see these? In the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. Right? I like one of those in that list. The kingdom part. Right? But he says, essentially, I am your partner in all three of these things. There is a kingdom that is coming. Amen? Amen. And in fact, chapter 1, verse 5, we learn that, that God made us a kingdom. That he is gathering together the people who will be his kingdom. And so we are entering into that. We are part of that. We are brothers and sisters in the kingdom. But... We are also, chapter 1, verse 9, partners and brothers in tribulation. Because before the kingdom comes, guess what? There is tribulation. And because there's tribulation, there's also going to be a need for this third thing, patient endurance. You know, we joke around the church sometimes about don't ever pray for patience because God will teach you. And He will, right? And how will He teach you? Through tribulation and suffering and difficulty. By the way, even if you don't pray, that's on the curriculum. I read the syllabus. It's in there, right? And, and God is going to teach you patient endurance because there, you are going to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And by the way, there should be no part of following a crucified man that should convince you that your life is going to be trouble-free. Right? That, that should, if you look at Jesus and see how his life went, you should not go, but my life is going to be all peaches except for the cream on top. Okay? There's going to be tribulation. You're going to need patient endurance. And part of the way you get it, by the way, is looking forward to the coming of the kingdom. That you endure these things because the kingdom is coming. It reminds me of what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12. He says, dear, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal you are now enduring as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, this is normal. This is not surprising. This is on the syllabus. This is part of the curriculum that Jesus has for, the, for those who follow Him. There's going to be tribulation and a need for patient endurance through it. 
And John, also in the rest of uh, verse 9, he gives us the context for the writing of his book. He is on the island of Patmos. Patmos is an island in the Aegean Sea. It's about 40 miles off the coast of what is now Turkey, and the, where these seven churches were historically located. In John's day, it was, it was a prison island. It was a place where you were sent to punish people for offenses against the Roman state. And John was sent there, according to the scriptures here, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So let me put this in modern terms so you can understand. John got shipped off to a concentration camp because of the gospel. That's where he went. This is a place where they put you to work you to death. And he went because of his proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while he's there on one particular Sunday, which by this time it's, Sunday has become known as the Lord's Day. It was the day of his resurrection. And so he calls it the Lord's Day. He hears, he is filled with the Spirit of God and he hears a voice like a trumpet. And that description, by the way, echoes the description of the voice on Mount Sinai that all of the people of Israel heard. If you're reading Revelation, you need to get familiar with your Old Testament. Because I think there are, uh, out of the couple hundred verses that are there, there are, I think, 178 references to the Old Testament. This is one. And... When God appeared on Mount Sinai, people heard a voice like a trumpet blast, and, he and the voice tells him to write what he sees in a book, to the le in, in letters to the seven churches. Now let's keep reading here. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a, long, with a, with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face, was, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So just like you and I, when you hear a voice behind you, what do you do? Turn and look. Who's talking? And he turns to look and he, to see who it is, and it is beyond anything he could have imagined. Remember, he's in this essentially concentration camp, and he hears a voice, and it's unlike any he's ever heard, and he turns to look, and what he sees is beyond what he could have imagined. He sees seven golden lampstands and in the middle of them a man standing but not a man like you've ever seen he sees one like the son of man remember your old testament daniel chapter 7 there is this heavenly scene and you see having seen all the kingdoms of the world come and be destroyed by a rock that is cut that destroys them all and fills the whole earth and is never uprooted again. You see that kingdom come 
And then Daniel chapter 7, you see the Ancient of Days, whom we sang about, seated on his throne. And you see one like a son of man who receives the kingdom. Who's the son of man? Jesus. Remember, if you read the Gospels, how does Jesus refer to himself over and over and over and over again? The Son of Man. It's his favorite name for himself. John sees one like a Son of Man standing in the middle and of, of all of these lampstands that are blazing. And these lampstands, you need to think in terms of the temple or the tabernacle, these, the, the great golden menorah that was in there to symbolize the presence of God. That giving light to the place. That because God is here, that light fills this place. And instead of one lampstand, though, there are seven of them, and he is standing in the middle of them. And the, the man that he sees is dressed in an unusual way. He is dressed, he isn't dressed like a king, he's dressed like a priest. He's dressed like a priest. If you read the book of Exodus and read the description of the, of the high priest's clothing, it's very similar to what this figure is wearing. A golden sash around his chest, or yours may, your Bible may read a golden girdle around his waist, something like that. But he's dressed in a long white robe, like a priest because Jesus in the present day is our great high priest who intercedes for us on our behalf uh, and and uh, has paid with his body for our sins and is both our sacrifice and our priest before God interceding for us as the book of Hebrews tells us and and it's interesting that this particular figure, remember, one like the Son of Man receives a kingdom. But this guy is dressed as a priest. Isn't that fascinating? And the re let me tell you why it's fascinating. Because in the Old Testament, the roles of king and priest are never united. Never. Never are they united. Every king who tried this on as an idea lost his kingdom. There were two who famously had it happen. Saul... In 1 Samuel 15, decides he will not wait on Samuel to offer the sacrifice. He decides he's going to offer the sacrifice himself. Samuel shows up and says to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to the word of God is better than the fat of rams, and your kingdom is going to be taken away from you because of what you've done. Bad idea. Don't, do, don't unite king and priest. Then later on, King Uzziah tries this, and when he does, he is immediately struck with leprosy, has to be escorted out of the temple, and he loses his kingship, and his son takes over from that day forward. So you get a warning. Don't unite king and priest. But Jesus is both our king and our priest. If you want to know how that works, read Hebrews. All right? He's high priest of a different order than the Levitical priesthood. But he is both our king and our priest. Uh, the one whom John sees is a king like he saw in Daniel 7 and also dressed as a priest because he is our high priest. And the lampstands, again, are like the one in the temple. 
And you're, you're supposed to understand that this is God in the, in the, the one whom John sees, he is seeing God's presence revealed. And as we keep reading, we're going to find out that these lampstands, each one of them represents a church, a gathering of God's people where he is present. John describes him as having hair that is white like wool or snow and eyes like flames with feet that glow with a golden light and a voice that sounds like Niagara Falls. I've never been to Niagara Falls but I've seen the videos. And you can't even talk because the sound of the water is so loud. As all of that water rushes by, there's a roar and a deafening noise to it. When this being speaks, it is with a loud voice. And in his right hand, a place of honor, he holds seven stars and a sharp sword comes out of his mouth. What would you think if you saw this, by the way? Would you stand there and go, ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> right? No, I'll tell you what you do. You do exactly what John did, which is fall on his face. Just dumbstruck. Says he, let's keep reading. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I want to say, Amen, John. Yes, you did, <laughs> right? But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John saw this vision. He fell on his face like a dead man, but look closely at what happens next. This figure first comes and touches him with his right hand, a hand of honor hand of fellowship touches him with his right hand and then speaks and what does he say don't be afraid why is john not to be afraid if you saw this being would you be afraid yes in fact in fact i think the natural response would be either to fall down in front of him on your face or to be all elbows and heels going the other direction <laughs> right because this is scary but john is told you don't need to be afraid why doesn't he need to be afraid because of who this is because this fearsome being is not simply the god of the universe this fearsome being is the one who is the savior for john and for you and for me and he comes near and approaches us and lays his right hand on us with the same message he gives to John. Don't be afraid. Why not? Because he is the eternal God. He is the first and the last. All things 
come from him. All things have their end in him. He's the first and the last. He's the eternal God. Uh, and he is the one who exists before all things and who brings all things to existence. He is the living God whose full humanity died but who lives forever and ever. Who rose and he holds power over death and Hades. Now, death and Hades are two ways of speaking about the same thing. Death is what happens to you. Hades is where you go. Okay? So one is the state. The other is the place. Uh, the realm of the dead. Jesus has power over them both. He determines both when and how people die and where they go when they die. And this is John's Savior and this is mine and this is yours. And there's no reason to be afraid of Him even though He appears in all of His glory. He, the writer to the Hebrews says that when He appears in glory, he says there will be some who draw near in joy and some who shrink back and are destroyed. And he says, we are not among those who shrink back. We are going to draw near to Him. Why? Because finally the Savior has come. We don't need to be afraid. And since all these things are true, John has the I mean, Jesus has the authority to commission John to write, and he tells him to write down three things. Do you see him there in the text? It says, write down, write down the things that you have seen. In other words, what you just witnessed. The things that are. That's what we're going to see in chapter 2 and 3. These letters to the seven churches that Jesus tells John what to write. To each of these seven churches. The things that are. The things that are happening in the present. In John's day. And the things that are going to take place after these things. Or the things that take place after this. As your Bible might read. In other words. Things about the future. What is that about? That's chapter 4 through 22. Now again I said. This, this year we're probably not going to get. Into chapter 4 to 22. I'm not sure exactly when we are going to get there. But it won't be. It won't be immediately. We're going to focus on the first three chapters and then do something else. But eventually we'll get there. And we'll get into that, the things that are going to take place after this. Um, but John tell, is told to write these three things. And then Jesus gives the meaning of some of the things that he saw. Uh, he says the seven golden lampstands are these seven churches that he listed for us in... Uh, in verse 11, Ephesus, and Smyrna, and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Each of those is represented by a lampstand in this vision. And the lampstand is there, again, to, to symbolize the fact that this is a, this, these are people, this is a gathering of God's people, and that He is present with them there. Remember, we saw last week, we looked at uh, we, we saw a different scene and John sees the seven spirits that are before the throne. And I told you, it's not that there are seven Holy Spirits. Right? There's one Holy Spirit, but He is present in His fullness in each place where He is honored and worshipped. Okay? And so, each of these lampstands is a place where God's presence is. 
it refers to a church, okay? A place where God's people are gathered. Not the building, but wherever the assembly is of God's people, okay? Um, and you have, um, says these seven stars are the seven angels of the, uh, of each, you know, one, of, one for each of these churches. Now, let me clarify that a little bit. The word angels in Greek is the word angelos, okay? And, and you might go, well, that makes sense. That's where you get the word angel from, right? Sounds just like it with a couple extra letters, except that it means messenger. And you have to rely on context, whether it means angel, as in heavenly being, or whether it means messenger, right? If you are an evangelist, you are someone who announces you're a messenger of good, right? Uh, the EU prefix there is the good messenger, okay? You're the evangelist of the good news. You're the announcer. You're the messenger. And so I think, by the way, also in the letters to the seven churches, both the angel and the people are told to repent in various times. Right? So I don't think that these are heavenly beings. I think this is a reference to the teaching elder in each place, or what you might call the senior pastor or the preaching guy. Okay? And because, do we need to repent? Say yes. <laughs> okay? We need to repent. And the church needs to repent, too. So I think these are not... You're not, you're not, we're not to understand it as angels per se, but as the messenger, uh, the one who is announcing God's message in each place. Uh, that's who these people are. Now, so now that we all understand what the text is about, I want to draw out some points of application that you might have missed as we're going through the text. First, notice the setting for this revelation of Jesus. It is about it is written by a persecuted man. And we all agree that going to a concentration camp represents a form of persecution, right? I would say yes. In fact, that's pretty far down the level of persecution. And short of being literally tortured to death, this is almost that. So it's written by a persecuted man to a group of people who are also facing persecution. Most interpreters would say that this book is written during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. And at this time, he is literally trying to exterminate across the Roman Empire every Christian that he can find. And if you're a Christian, you're a hunted animal. And they are trying to get rid of you. Persecuted man writing to persecuted Christians. And its contents come from Jesus, who is, let's all remember, the first one of us to be put to death by his persecutors. And these followers of Jesus are oppressed and persecuted for preaching the good news of the gospel about Jesus. And, so, and here's what it has to say to us. 
that in the midst of persecution, when we are oppressed, that Jesus is our great high priest and he is with us. Jesus is our great high priest and he is with us. Did you notice where Jesus is standing? In the middle of all of these churches. Right? So if you're being oppressed, if you're being persecuted, where is Jesus? He's in the middle of you. He's right there with you in it. He's right there with you in it. Wherever God's people are, Jesus is with them. And notice what he does with the leaders of the church. He holds them in his right hand. He has them in his grip. He protects them. Let me just tell you, that is comforting to me. I hope it's comforting to you that God holds the leaders of your church in his grip. He does not let us go. He keeps us. He also protects us. What's that sword about? It's a sword. It's an offensive weapon. Right? Of all of the people I would like to recruit to my defense, I would like to recruit the Creator God because He has the longest arms. Right? The story is told of Abraham Lincoln that he was once challenged to a duel. Now, don't you wish for a politics in which we, uh, our political leaders literally went out on the lawn and stepped it off and grabbed either a sword or a pistol and figured it out? I mean, that would be fun, wouldn't it? But uh, we live in divided times, but I don't think we're that divided, right? <laughs> but uh, anyway, someone challenged Abe Lincoln to a duel. Well, Abe was about six foot four, and the guy who challenged him to a duel was about my height. And, and since he was the one who received the challenge, he was allowed to pick the weapon, remember? From Bugs Bunny, choose your weapon, right? And he said, well, I'll pick broadswords, right? Well, that was a good idea. So before the duel, reportedly, uh, Lincoln got his big sword, and he was reaching way up above his head, just chopping limbs off this tree with his. Okay, and the other guy began to realize, he's got longer arms than me. <laughs> this is going to end badly. And so all of a sudden, there was a meeting of the minds, right? And they figured it out, and Lincoln didn't have to stabbed the guy but in any case which is a good thing right but but God has a sword and he is coming to our defense and he who spoke the word the world into existence by his word is able with the same word to bring judgment to all of our persecutors all of those who oppose us. And he one day will. Amen? He one day will. And as fearsome as he is in his appearance and power, he holds no fear for us because he is our Savior, not our judge. We don't need to fear death and judgment because they have fallen on Jesus 
and he holds the keys to death and Hades. And he has told us that we will be raised to life again. So, since all of these things are true, then here's what we need to remember. Whenever we're oppressed for the sake of the gospel, and I don't know what shape that will take in your life or in mine. Some of you who are younger than me will probably face more challenges than those of us who are older have ever faced. Now, certainly the direction our country has moved in the last few years is surprising to me. Having grown up uh, when uh, Ronald Reagan was president, this is a very surprising place that we have found ourselves. But you will probably at some point face some kind of pushback over the fact that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And when you do, here's what we need to remember. That Jesus is our great high priest. That he keeps us and he protects us and he equips us for fearless living. How can we be fearless? Because we know the one whom John saw. And he has set us free from death. And even if we die for Jesus' sake, we will not remain dead. He who died and is alive forevermore will ensure that the same thing is true of us. And he protects us and is with us and keeps us. And he holds us in his hand. When I was a high school student, this is you know one of the uh, things that went on at my house when I was growing up was mom and dad would lead a Bible study every Monday night. And uh, mom's job was to provide snacks and counsel to everybody who would come in. Dad would teach the Bible. And we were responsible as kids, bring your friends. And so about 50, 60 of us would pack into the living room uh, on sofas and the floor and the fireplace and wherever we could find a spot. And we listened to dad teach the Bible and he always used this illustration. He said, he said folks, um, the life stage that you're in right now is comparable to swatting mosquitoes. But the charge of the elephant is coming. And if you never get good at swatting mosquitoes, you're not going to be prepared for the day the elephant is bearing down on you. And that's really how I look at this text is that right now, this is addressed to people whom the elephant has charged, whom the elephant has grabbed hold of and beat against a few nearby trees. And where we are living right now is in the realm of swatting mosquitoes. But one day, I think the charge of the elephant is coming. And if we don't get good at swatting mosquitoes, we're going to be in deep trouble when the elephant's charge comes. And we need to be ready. We need to be ready. We need to prepare. And we need to remember the truth that John tells us here. That Jesus is in the midst of us. That He protects us. That He keeps us. That He holds our leaders in His hands. And that he 
holds the keys of death and Hades, and death has no fear for us. What's the worst thing that can happen to us? We get imprisoned, tortured, and killed in that order. I, I would willingly sign up for none of the above. Fact. But if those things happen, this thing right here is absolutely vital. In fact, it's absolutely vital to us right now to remember that Jesus is in the midst of us. And that he is protecting and leading and ruling over this place and us as his people. And that there will be a judgment day for those who are opposed to him and to his people. But in the meantime, we have a message to proclaim, just like John did. And if that message puts us in prison, so be it. If it gets us tortured, so be it. If it gets us killed, so be it. Because we know the one who releases and imprisons in death. And I would rather have him as my friend than my enemy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so amazing, so startling, so fearsome, and so encouraging all at once. Father, we pray that we might live lives of faithfulness in reverent obedience to the one who loves us and gave his life for us. Uh, Father, may we proclaim the good message, though it costs us everything, because by it we gain everything. We gain eternal life in the presence of a holy God who loved us and sent His, sent his Son for us. Father, I pray that You would help us to be faithful to You regardless of the cost, regardless of the cost today, regardless of the cost tomorrow, regardless of the cost later in our life. Father, may we be like Polycarp who when asked to repent, recant and repent of his faith in Jesus or go to the, be burned at the stake said for 80 and 6 years, I have followed my Lord and he has never been unfaithful to me. How could I then be unfaithful to him. Father, help us be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.